Hello, listeners. It's Patrick Beeman, founder of Inside the Boards. You're listening to Dr. Greg Rodden on the Physiology by Physio podcast discussing diabetes. So now let's take a look at what happens when we have dysregulation of our blood glucose, i.e. what are the signs and symptoms that we notice in a patient who is hypoglycemic versus hyperglycemic? So let's start with hypoglycemia first. What are some of the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia? Well, here you need to think about patients with fatigue and confusion, lightheadedness, maybe some nausea, vomiting, uh, slurred speech, irritability, as well as shakes and sweating and palpitations. Those last three are all from the adrenergic response to hypoglycemia, i.e. the epinephrine that spikes in hypoglycemic patients. You can also see confusion and slurred speech and lightheadedness, like I mentioned. So thinking clinically, when a patient comes to the emergency department with altered mental status symptoms like these, one of the standard labs to check is a finger stick glucose to rule out hypoglycemia. Thankfully, hypoglycemia is a pretty easy problem to fix, right? We can just give the patient oral glucose with a meal or orange juice or something like that. I suggest we use ultra caramel frappuccinos instead. Or if they can't eat or drink, then we can give them an IM shot of glucagon. Okay, so that was hypoglycemia signs and symptoms. What about the signs and symptoms of hyperglycemia? So in this setting, the patient may again experience things like fatigue, but also weakness and muscle cramps and vague abdominal pain, uh, maybe increased thirst with polydipsia and polyuria. They may also have nausea and vomiting, uh, also headache. So most of these signs and symptoms are due to the osmotic diuresis associated with hyperglycemia. When glucose levels are very high in the blood, the kidneys have to deal with that glucose load. Glucosuria ultimately produces electrolyte changes like low total body potassium, which helps to explain many of these symptoms too. Hyperglycemic patients may also complain of blurry vision. So why is that? Well, blurry vision develops in patients with severe hyperglycemia because of the hyperosmolar state produced. Heavy glucose loads and glucose metabolites can also cause structural changes to the vitreous humor and cause dilation of the lens, altering its normal focal length, thus blurry vision. Pretty neat, right? Continuing on this thread of hyperglycemia, type 1 diabetics on initial presentation will classically experience recent weight loss and polyphagia, along with other symptoms like polyuria, fatigue, and abdominal pain. The weight loss is partly due to osmotic diuresis, but most of it is actually due to body weight loss. So why is this? Well, keep in mind that type 1 diabetics have stopped producing insulin. So their catabolic mechanisms are running on all cylinders, burning through body fat and muscle mass without any counterregulation from insulin, thus weight loss. Okay, and the last visible signs of hyperglycemia that I wanted to cover here are actually consequences of hyperinsulinism. So given that, would you expect to see them in type 1 or type 2 diabetics? Well, you'd expect to see these in type 2 diabetics. Anyways, chronic hyperinsulinism predisposes to weight gain, uh, to acanthosis nigricans, and to lipodystrophy. Unfortunately, the weight gain only worsens their underlying metabolic problems. Acanthosis nigricans looks a little bit like dirt that's on the skin folds, especially on the axillary skin folds, or you may see it on the neck of a heavyset patient, but you can't rub this dirt-looking stuff off because it's actually a product of hyperinsulinism. And lastly, the lipodystrophy of chronic hyperinsulinism is seen as these abnormal fat pads, like the buffalo hump that's classically seen in Cushing syndrome. Okay, so those were the signs and symptoms of hyperglycemia. So since we're on this topic, let's get ready to take a deep dive into diabetes. Ready? Go. First off, let's break down the name. Diabetes mellitus. So diabetes comes from the Greek term for siphon, 
and mellitus comes from the Latin term for honey sweet. Back in ye olden days, the physicians noticed that these patients seemed to be urinating or siphoning off a lot of their body fluid. And then, when the doctors tasted the urine, it tasted sweet, hence diabetes mellitus. So, pretty neat backstory, right? Okay, so now on to numbers. So, diabetes mellitus affects 9% of the U.S. population, around 30 million people, with another 84 million having pre-diabetes. It's the seventh leading cause of death in the United States. And as we all know, there are two main types of diabetes, type 1 and type 2. When you think about a type 1 diabetic, what kind of presentation comes to mind? Well, you think about how this disease usually afflicts younger patients, classically a child or a teenager, who presents with polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, and weight loss. Type 1 diabetes is an abrupt onset in most cases. This sits in contrast to type 2 diabetes. When thinking of a type 2 diabetic, what kind of presentation comes to mind? Well, type 2 diabetes usually has a gradual onset and affects adult patients who aren't living the best lifestyle and kind of have a metabolic syndrome type of picture with weight gain, especially central adiposity, along with hypertension, um, bad lipid profiles, and insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetics are often totally asymptomatic before diagnosis. We just happen to catch their diabetes on routine screening. Something I should point out here, type 2 diabetes accounts for 90% of diabetes cases worldwide. And unfortunately, the incidence of type 2 diabetes is actually rising among children, especially among blacks and Hispanic youth. This notion of children with type 2 diabetes was laughable to physicians years ago, but the phenomenon is real and it's growing in the US. Okay, so that's a basic intro into type 1 and type 2 diabetes. For completeness sake, I should also mention the so-called type 1.5 diabetes, which is like a cross between types 1 and 2. Type 1.5 diabetes is like a slow-burning autoimmune disease that presents during adulthood. It's more formally called latent autoimmune diabetes in adults, or LADA for short. Type 1.5 diabetes accounts for a very small fraction of the overall cases, though. And last but not least, you can also develop diabetes mellitus as a part of other disease processes, if they affect the pancreas. To name a few, hereditary hemochromatosis produces the so-called bronze diabetes, and acute pancreatitis of any cause can produce full-blown diabetes mellitus as well. But for the rest of this episode, we'll focus on the standard type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So now onto the pathophysiology of type 1 versus type 2 diabetes. If you had to use a phrase to describe each, how would you describe type 1 versus type 2 diabetes? Well, type 1 diabetes is due to an absolute insulin deficiency from the depletion of beta cells, while type 2 diabetes is due to insulin resistance of the peripheral tissues and beta cell burnout. Okay, now let's dive in with a little more detail here, starting with type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is caused by absolute insulin deficiency due to depletion of the beta cells in the pancreas, usually from an autoimmune destruction of the endocrine pancreas. Like many autoimmune diseases, researchers think that there's some environmental trigger that will set off the process in genetically susceptible individuals, but there's still a lot to be learned. Possible triggers include viral infections like Coxsackie or CMV infection. Also, some genetic predispositions to type 1 diabetes have been clearly identified, such as certain variants of HLA-DR3 and DR4, which predispose to autoimmune attack of the pancreas. These kinds of patients are also at risk for other autoimmune conditions, uh, such as celiac disease, uh, Hashimoto's, or Addison's disease. But regardless of the trigger or the patient's genetics, in type 1 diabetes, the patient will have autoantibodies that target antigens from beta cells of the pancreas. And along with the help of T-cells, they'll essentially kill the endocrine pancreas. 
But when thinking about type 1 diabetics, it's key to remember that these patients remain sensitive to the effects of insulin. It's just an absolute insulin deficiency that produces type 1 diabetes, not insulin resistance. Okay, now let's contrast this with type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is caused by insulin resistance plus beta cell burnout. Excess caloric intake and sedentary lifestyle predispose to obesity, and in many cases of type 2 diabetes, this excess adipose tissue seems to be the main driver of systemic insulin resistance. Over time, the beta cells have to produce more and more insulin and eventually start to fail, so-called beta cell burnout, producing relative insulin deficiency on top of their pre-existing insulin resistance. And all the while, blood glucose concentrations will rise higher and higher. Proposed mechanisms that drive peripheral insulin resistance, especially in adipose tissue, include things like diacylglycerol and ceramide, which are intracellular metabolites that seem to blunt the intracellular signaling response to insulin, producing insulin resistance. Also, there's changes to adipokine profiles that produces insulin resistance. Uh, adipokines are just hormones and cytokines produced by adipocytes, uh, such as adiponectin. Another proposed mechanism driving peripheral insulin resistance seems to be a generalized pro-inflammatory state that's associated with the metabolic syndrome. TNF-alpha and IL-6 production is elevated in, in the adipocytes of these patients, and pro-inflammatory signaling in adipocytes may disrupt insulin signaling and produce insulin resistance as well. And last but not least, other tissues like the liver become resistant to the effects of insulin as well in type 2 diabetes. And if the liver is insulin resistant, then we have trouble suppressing gluconeogenesis, which will also drive up the blood glucose. Okay, so type 1 diabetes is from insulin deficiency, while type 2 diabetes is from insulin resistance and beta cell burnout. Both type 1 and type 2 diabetes appear to be a consequence of genes and environment, but rather counterintuitively, type 2 diabetes actually has a stronger genetic predisposition than type 1. In other words, most patients with type 2 diabetes have a first or second degree relative with the disease, but most patients with type 1 diabetes do not. Okay, cool. Now let's start to talk about the complications of diabetes mellitus. These are classically broken down into two categories, macrovascular consequences and microvascular consequences. Let's start with the macrovascular consequences. So diabetes wreaks havoc on large and medium-sized blood vessels, particularly the coronary arteries predisposing to myocardial infarction the cerebral arteries predisposing to stroke, as well as the peripheral arteries predisposing to peripheral arterial disease. So how does this happen? Well, it's essentially due to accelerated atherosclerosis. Because the blood vessels are constantly seeing super high glucose loads, they eventually start to accumulate this junk called advanced glycation end products. And these AGEs are rather sticky and they produce vascular damage. So they provide the perfect setup for vascular inflammation and fatty plaque accumulation characteristic of atherosclerosis. So diabetes hastens this process of atherosclerosis to produce macrovascular problems like MI, stroke, and peripheral arterial disease. And do you happen to recall the number one cause of death in patients with diabetes? It's cardiovascular disease, specifically MI. Additionally, diabetes produces microvascular consequences. So what are those? Well, here you need to think about the microvessels in the kidneys, the eyes, and the nerves, which produces diabetic nephropathy, retinopathy, and neuropathy, respectively. So starting with diabetic nephropathy, again, we have very high blood glucose, and this produces advanced glycation end products, and these are very sticky. And this has the effect where in the small vessels, like those of the glomeruli, albumin will like to stick to the basement membranes. Hence, you can see basement membranes that are thickened by hyaline on microscopy in patients with diabetic nephropathy. Additionally, under the microscope, you can see expansion of the mesangium, 
between the small blood vessels located within Bowman's capsule, producing these odd-looking Kimmel-Steele-Wilson nodules, which you've probably seen on pictures in your renal path class. But something weird about the effect of this hyalinization, even though these capillary basement membranes become thickened by the accumulated hyaline protein, they're actually leakier than normal, producing protein spillage into the urine. And this hyaline also starts to damage the renal vasculature, producing hyperfiltration injury. Diabetic nephropathy can get so bad that it becomes end-stage renal disease, and end-stage renal disease is actually the number two cause of death in patients with diabetes mellitus. And guess what? Diabetic nephropathy is the number one cause of end-stage renal disease in the United States as well. So with those facts in mind, do you remember how we screen for diabetic nephropathy? Well, we screen with an annual urinalysis, looking for microalbumin spillage into the urine. Remember those leakier membranes in the glomerulus. So what can we do to try and combat diabetic nephropathy? Well, number one, obviously we can try and control their blood glucose, but we can also try and limit the effects of hyperfiltration injury by giving diabetics with hypertension an ACE inhibitor like lisinopril. So how does this help? Well, it helps by limiting angiotensin II production, which will eventually dilate the efferent arteriole and attenuate some of the effects of hyperfiltration. Pretty cool idea, right? Okay, so those were the renal consequences of diabetes mellitus, but what about the eyes? How does diabetes affect them? Well, in the eyes, specifically in the retinal vessels, diabetes degrades the vasculature and produces ischemia. In response to this ischemia, the retinal microvasculature produces boatloads of VEGF, or vascular endothelial growth factor, which initiates the process of angiogenesis, trying to sprout little vessels all over the place, desperately trying to get some blood supply to the area. This process is termed proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And this is problematic in the eyes because these new little vessels are very fragile and rupture easily. Thus, these fragile retinal blood vessels enter into these cycles of hemorrhaging and fibrotic repair, which ultimately causes retinal detachment and blindness. And diabetes happens to be one of the leading causes of blindness in the United States. Because we know that diabetes goes after the eyes too, we recommend an annual eye exam to screen for diabetic retinopathy. And if proliferative retinopathy is detected, then they'll try and fix it with laser ablation of the sprouting vessels, and or they can use anti-VEGF shots with monoclonal agents like ranibizumab. Okay, so in this section on the microvascular consequences of diabetes, we've covered diabetic nephropathy and diabetic retinopathy. The last microvascular consequence to cover here is diabetic neuropathy. So what happens there? Well, one hypothesis is that neurons just aren't very good at handling super high glucose loads because the persistent hyperglycemia predisposes to oxidative stress and free radical damage. Well, how so? Well, in trying to utilize the flood of glucose entering the neuron, it will deplete its intracellular stores of NADPH and therefore deplete its glutathione stores. Glutathione is a free radical scavenger, so if glutathione is depleted, our neurons are susceptible to oxidative stress. So what will this diabetic neuropathy look like for the patient? It typically starts with decreased sensation in the extremities, particularly in the feet, but it can really affect any nerve, including motor and autonomic nerves too, not just sensory. If the autonomic nervous system is affected, that can obviously have widespread effects. Depending on the nerves affected, you could see cardiovascular effects like orthostatic hypotension because we lose out on autonomic reflex arcs. Uh, you could see GI effects like gastroparesis or GU effects like neurogenic bladder. Patients can also get erectile dysfunction from diabetes. 
A commonly seen finding in diabetics is anhydrosis of the feet, or lack of sweating in the feet, which is due to impaired sympathetic nervous system function, which produces very dry skin and messes with skin integrity. So what are some of the clinical considerations here? Well, we recommend annual monofilament screening exams to check for worsening sensation in the feet. And we recommend that patients with poor foot sensation go see a podiatrist to get fitted for diabetic shoes that fit them perfectly. Okay, so diabetic nephropathy, retinopathy, and neuropathy are all microvascular consequences of diabetes. And last but not least, diabetic patients are also considered to be relatively immunocompromised. So why is that? Well, for some reason, diabetes limits the functional capacity of our neutrophils and macrophages. And if they get a wound, this can be exacerbated by vascular compromise. And what predisposes them to those wounds? Well, it's diabetic neuropathy, of course. So their skin is dry and it cracks easily because of the autonomic dysfunction, and they have sensation issues, making it harder for them to feel the wounds that develop, which can fester and become severe soft tissue infections, especially from pseudomonas. The soft tissue infection can spread down to the bone, producing osteomyelitis, and into the blood, producing septicemia, which can obviously cause morbidity and mortality. These soft tissue infections require aggressive wound care, but if they get bad enough, they may require amputation. Okay, so in this section, we've covered the macrovascular and microvascular consequences of diabetes, and we rounded it out with immunocompromised state and diabetic foot wounds. One of the most commonly tested complications of type 1 diabetes is diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA. Type 1 diabetics don't produce insulin, and insulin normally upregulates fat synthesis. So a deficiency would result in excessive lipolysis and subsequent ketoacidosis. A lack of insulin results in lipolysis, or the breakdown of triglycerides, into free fatty acids and glycerol and it does this through the enzyme hormone-sensitive lipase. The glycerol and the free fatty acids are transported into the blood and go to the liver. The glycerol can then be used in the gluconeogenic pathway, and the free fatty acids can be converted into ketones. So you can see that a lack of insulin upregulates these pathways and results in excessive ketone production. Ketones are organic acids, which are responsible for many of the symptoms associated with DKA. For example, the accumulation of excess ketoacids lowers the pH of the blood, which stimulates hyperventilation in an attempt to blow off CO2. So in this way, hyperventilating can reduce acidosis, which is exactly why it occurs in patients with DKA. Again, as the pH decreases, the area postrema in the medulla is stimulated resulting in nausea and vomiting. In DKA, there are several mechanisms that alter the potassium concentration. For step one, it's important to know how potassium is affected intracellularly, extracellularly, as well as how total potassium stores are affected. So there's an intracellular hypokalemia, an extracellular hyperkalemia, which can actually cause peaked T waves on an EKG, it's very important to know for step one, and an overall hypokalemia. The treatment for this includes potassium and insulin. But before we move on, let's dive into the pathophysiology of how these alterations in potassium concentrations occur. So again, the problem in DKA is an absence of insulin, which results in hyperglycemia. The excess glucose exceeds the kidney's ability to reabsorb it, so it gets filtered into the nephron. Once in the nephron, glucose has an osmotic effect and pulls water into the lumen. 
This is why diabetics have to pee so frequently and also why they become dehydrated and feel the urge to constantly drink water. The dehydrated state results in hypovolemia, which is sensed by the cells of the juxtaglomerular apparatus. Renin is then secreted by the juxtaglomerular cells, which ultimately results in increased aldosterone. Aldosterone then acts on the principal cells to reabsorb sodium and secrete potassium. The loss of potassium in the urine is partially responsible for the overall hypokalemia. Okay, so let's take a step back. Let's look at how other potassium is regulated by cells throughout the body in decay. So this is a cell, and normally, insulin drives potassium into the cell. In this case, a lack of insulin would result in an accumulation of extracellular potassium. Cells also have a potassium hydrogen antiporter that pumps potassium out of the cell in response to acid. In this case, a patient with DKA has excessive ketoacids that stimulate the potassium pump, causing an intracellular potassium depletion and extracellular potassium accumulation. So you can see that the lack of insulin and the ketoacids cause intracellular hypokalemia and extracellular hyperkalemia, and that aldosterone results in a loss of total potassium, resulting in an overall hypokalemia. Wow, that was a lot. Okay, so let's do a few examples to solidify this material. How would the plasma sodium concentrations be affected in a patient with DKA? As you can see, the aldosterone can stimulate the reabsorption of sodium through the principal cells. But the osmotic activity of glucose actually supersedes the effects of aldosterone and pulls sodium back into the lumen of the nephron, resulting in hyponatremia. Okay, another question. What would happen to the serum and urine osmolarity in a patient with DKA? As I've shown here, glucose pulls water into the lumen, which decreases the osmolarity of the urine. The transfer of water from the plasma to the urine results in an increased plasma or interstitial osmolarity. Okay, moving along to type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is caused by insufficient insulin and insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetics typically have a normal functioning pancreas, but the problem is that they overeat and the chronic hyperglycemia is in a constant tug-of-war battle with the pancreas. So, blood glucose levels rise after a large meal and the pancreas attempts to pump out as much insulin as possible. So early on in the disease, the pancreas can release enough insulin to counteract the hyperglycemia, which is why the baseline insulin is initially high. As the disease progresses, cells begin to downregulate their insulin receptors and become less responsive to insulin, making the pancreas work even harder. As adipocytes become insulin resistant, fat begins to accumulate in the blood. And this makes sense. Insulin normally increases lipogenesis. So an insulin resistant patient would have increased lipolysis, resulting in hyperlipidemia. Let's go through a few questions. What would be the endogenous serum fasting insulin concentration of a 60-year-old woman with a 40-year history of poorly controlled type 2 diabetes? As I mentioned, the baseline insulin is initially high. However, over time, the pancreas gets overworked and shuts down. Ultimately, the fasting insulin levels become non-existent, and these patients become dependent on insulin medications. 
So in a patient with poorly controlled type 2 diabetes over a several decade period, you'd expect the insulin to be extremely low or even completely absent. And that concludes this section.